Amen. Um, <clears throat> this Sunday is the Sunday that the church uh, historically celebrates Palm Sunday, uh, remembering of when Jesus entered Jerusalem the week of his crucifixion. And uh, it's, a, it's a time when we kind of celebrate his kingship, um, the hosannas that were said to him as he is the Messiah and he is uh, the king. And um, as we put our focus next Sunday on Easter, it's when the church historically remembers the resurrection of Christ. Um, and that is a joyful, uh, wonderful time, um, you know, synced up with kind of the beginning of Easter, uh, or spring rather. Uh, believe it or not, today's the first day of spring. Seems kind of cold for all that, but <laughs> there you are. Um, so it's a time when we remember those things, and those things are really important. And a part of what I want to do today and next Sunday is to celebrate that and to talk a little bit about what it means to try to unpack um, a little bit of what it means to us. And so as always, you know, our purpose is to be helping you connect with Jesus, to grow in faith, and to share his love. And and this these two Sundays really should help you with all of those. Uh, this uh, Sunday and next Sunday, these messages are a perfect time for people that um, are curious about Jesus and um, don't really know what they believe, maybe have some questions, maybe have some doubt. And it's a good um, time for all of us to deepen our faith. And so we're going to call this Love Gives New Life. That's how you see on the screen here this uh, two-week uh, series, Love Gives New Life. And that's um, a nice way to summarize what we're celebrating here uh, with Easter, that through Jesus, He gives us new life. And I want to this morning focus on a couple of simple questions that you see on the screen there. Why did Jesus have to die? And what does His death accomplish? Why does Jesus have to die? And what does His death accomplish? I think it's really important for us to ask those questions. I think it's really important for us to pause to say, what is it that I believe? Why do I believe that? Now, one reason that I say that, um, I've got over there uh, a book that I've got plenty of them here. You feel free to take one called The Case for Christ, uh, written by a journalist who was the law um, editor for the Chicago... um, Tribune, I think it was, um, and an atheist and um, set out to search the evidence for Jesus, um, to really disprove Jesus. And that process of a honest intellectual pursuit of trying to disprove Jesus led to real life change. And that's what he writes about. So that book that's over on the table, I want you to uh, feel free to take the case for Christ. That's what it's about. And it, hey, that's a great book for you to give away to friends. Uh, you got a friend that is like, they don't want nothing to do with the church conversation, but they're open to talking about Jesus. I think that's a great uh, thing uh, to do. Um, as you know, even Hugh Hefner, the Playboy Mansion um, guy, has publicly stated that if it's true that Jesus lived, died, was executed, and raised from the dead, that changes everything. I think that's an astute observation. It changes everything. And so I'm actually going to uh, read to you a little bit uh, from this, which is a, um, a snippet from the case for Christ, which I gave away. I saw a few of you took these last week, the case for the resurrection. 
And this it walks through what evidence, what, what honest scholarly, what the scientists, the people that would seek to disprove this, what are the questions that they ask and what does that come up with? Because I think it is important for us to understand, do you believe that Jesus actually lived? Okay, do you, this person, this historical figure who claimed to be the son of God, do you believe that Jesus actually lived? And do you believe that he was actually put to death? Right? Because it doesn't mean anything. If all we believe is that he passed out on the cross, he wasn't really dead, and then he walked around the earth after that, well, then Easter doesn't mean jack squat. Right? So I, I want to just kind of, let's delve into that. And then next Sunday, we're also going to spend a little time just talking about the evidences of the resurrection as well. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the evidences and the intellectual questions that should be asked first. But then the meat of the talk this morning is going to be some scriptural truth of what Christ's death means for us. And I think it's going to be a joyful occasion this morning if you're listening. Okay. So... um Historical methodologies to assess the evidence for Jesus returning from the dead. Um, there's a, an award-winning book that sought out to do that. It's a, a historian, not a believer, a historian, Paul Mayer, wrote that the book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, written by Dr. Gary Habermas and Dr. Michael Lacona, was the most comprehensive treatment of the subject of evidences of if Jesus actually rose from the dead that's ever been written. So that would be one if you want something a little bit deeper than the books I'm giving away here, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Dr. Gary Habermas and Dr. Michael Lacona. And I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from a conversation uh, with them. Regarding getting past prejudice through a, quote, minimal facts approach. So, um, there's a lot of evidence, a lot of data out there about Jesus, um, but what some um, scholars have done is chosen to, let's just focus on a few. Let's focus on a few that are kind of uh, indisputable for us to ask questions about. So in this work, they only considered facts that met two criteria. First, there must be very strong historical evidence supporting them. And secondly, the evidence must be so strong that the vast majority of today's scholars on the subject, including skeptical ones, meaning um, scientists, academics, historians that don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in the Christian faith, even they accept these certain historical facts. So we got to ask this question. Are you saying that people should accept these facts just because a lot of scholars do? No. No, we're saying that this evidence is so good that even skeptical scholars are convinced by it. Let's face it. There's a greater likelihood that a purported historical fact is true when someone accepts it, even though they're not in agreement with your metaphysical beliefs. Well, how do you know what these scholars believe? Habermas compiled a list of more than 2,200 sources in French, German, and English in which experts have written on the resurrection. He has identified minimal facts that are strongly evidenced and which are regarded as historical by a large majority of scholars, including skeptics. Then they came up with the best historical explanation to account for those facts. According to Lycona, quote, and even an extreme liberal like John Dominic Crossan says that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical ever can be. Skeptic James Tabor says this, I think we need have no doubt 
that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, he was truly dead. Both Gerd Ludemann, who is an atheistic New Testament critic, and Bart Ehrman, who is an agnostic, call the crucifixion an indisputable fact. Why? Why? Why is this, right? Why? First of all, because all four Gospels report it. We also have a number of non-Christian sources that corroborate the crucifixion. For instance, the historian Tacitus said Jesus, quote, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, unquote. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that Pilate, quote, condemned him to be crucified, unquote. Lucian of Samosata, who was a Greek satirist, mentions the crucifixion, and Marabar Serapian, say it fast and confidently, who was a pagan, confirms that Jesus was executed. Even the Jewish Talmud reports that Jesus was killed. See, Habermas says, Jesus was crucified and died as a result. The scholarly consensus gained even among those who are skeptical toward the resurrection is absolutely overwhelming. To not, to deny it would be to take a marginal position that would get you laughed out of the academic world. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that Alexander the Great accomplished a lot? Honest question. Do you believe that? Yeah, okay. Well, let me let you know this. Our two best sources on Alexander the Great were not written until at least 400 years after his life. Even the most skeptical expert agrees that we have biographies written of Jesus within 70 years of his life. That unambiguously report the disciples' claims of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 400 years, 70 years. In fact, we've got at least seven early sources testifying that the disciples willingly suffered, were killed in defense of their beliefs. And if we conclude the martyrdoms of Paul and Jesus' half-brother James, we have 11 sources. The truth is that liars make poor martyrs. These people were put to death because they believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that He lived, that He was put to death, that He came back to life. All they had to do was recant that belief and they would have not been put to death. Liars make poor martyrs. So, why did Jesus have to die? What does his death accomplish? Well, Jesus himself said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus summarized the whole thing in those words, right? We go back to Genesis, to the creation story. Adam and Eve, God creates them. He puts them in the garden. He says, you can do anything except not this one thing. Just don't eat the fruit of this one tree. And what's the one thing that they do, right? The serpent comes to deceive them. He overstates God's punishment, overstates the restriction, understates the freedom. And what do they do? They listen to him. They were human, just like you and I. And don't we do the same thing? We listen to the lies of overstating God's restriction, overstating the punishment, and understating the freedom that God gives us. And we allow the truth to be twisted. We allow ourselves to be turned away. And God cannot stand sin because it is sin that separates us from Him. And let's not get it twisted. God hates it. Sin causes separation. 
Separation in human relationships and separation in our relationship with Him. So God immediately set about doing what was needed to make it right. And we can't get confused that this forgiveness that we experience comes cheap. No, it required bloodshed. God created the animals. God loves animals. And yet what did God do in that moment with Adam and Eve so that their sin could be forgiven? He killed an animal and he used the skin to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. Adam and Eve went and they hid. And isn't that also what we do when we're not feeling good about how we're living? The last place we want to be is church. The last place we want to be is around churchy people, right? It's what we always do. We want to run and we want to hide. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And what does God do? He does with us as he did with them. He goes looking for us because he loves us because he doesn't want the separation. But our sin comes with a price. Blood had to be shed. God did not relish, did not enjoy putting that animal to death any more than he enjoyed turning over his own son to put, be put to death for the punishment of our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're going to read some scripture this morning. If you'd like a Bible, there's a few extra at the back of the room. Let's start in Romans chapter 3. Why did Jesus have to die? What does his death accomplish? Romans chapter 3. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 3. Let's read verses 23 through 25. For everyone is sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So we see on the screen what's accomplished on the cross. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. Let's flip the page, Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. We are made right. Saved from God's wrath. It's got nothing to do with anything that we do. All that is up to us is to repent. To believe, to receive, to follow. It's, it took Jesus' death, not passing out, not swooning, but being executed, being put to death on the cross in penalty for our sins, for us to be made right. But we should celebrate, we should be happy, we should be full of joy, the challenges of life. Uh, Right now my garbage disposal is not functioning properly and it makes me mad. I got home last night to discover this. But that's small, that's small stuff. Yeah, I got to get down there, under there this morning, splash around in dirty water and, and deal with it later on this afternoon. But that's small potatoes because I'm on my way to heaven because God made me right with him through Jesus. 
Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Just let the truth wash over you this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. you see it on the screen. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. But now, you have been united with Christ. And again, as some of you remember from our study of Ephesians, this you is plural. You all believers. And united is one of the themes of the letter, united with Christ. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. We are not brought near to Him because we want to be. We are not brought near to Him because we're special. We are not brought near to Him because we check it off as a mental checkbox. We're not brought near to Him because we attend a Sunday service. We are not brought near to Him because we think we're good enough. We're not brought near to Him because we're not a bad person compared to Hitler. We are not brought near for any of those reasons. We are brought near because Jesus was crucified. Let's go... uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. 1 John's a small book, a little letter towards the back, before Revelations, after James. 1 John, after 1 and 2 Peter, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Why did Jesus have to die? What does his death accomplish? 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. But if we are living in the light... As God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, if you're here and you've confessed your sin, you've asked for the forgiveness of Christ, you are confessing Jesus as your Lord, you are following His Lordship, then it is on you to push out, push away, Negative feelings about your past, about your mistakes, about your sin. Stand up in the truth. Because of Jesus, you have been cleansed. Listen, I know what it's like to stand on a Sunday morning fighting with feeling dirty and have to pound with my fist on the chair in front of me as people sing songs and say, I am clean, I am clean, I am clean. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. But that feeling needs to not come from some positive mental attitude, but from the truth. Grounded in the truth. When you make a faith statement based on truth, there is power. Through the blood of Jesus, you are cleansed. You are made clean. Let's go Revelations chapter 1. I'm just going to just peer into that scary book at the back. Revelations after Jude. Revelations chapter 1 and verse 5. 
Revelations chapter 1. And remember, the title of that book is The Revelation of Jesus. Revelations chapter 1 and verse 5. Speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. And glory to Him who loved us, and has freed us from our sin by shedding His blood for us. Let me unpack a deep truth in the Scripture. Before you accept Jesus, you are a slave to sin. What that means is you breathe it. You are compelled to repeat it. You don't have any choice. Before you accept Jesus, you are a sinner, a filthy sinner and nothing but a sinner. And to think anything else is fantasy. And someday we all will stand before Jesus and every knee will bow, even those that are on their way to hell. Every knee will bow. At some point you will wake up to the fact that it is Jesus and only Jesus, that it is about Jesus, that he is the all-powerful one. How foolish we are to not accept this gift. He paid the price for us and what is in it is freedom. It's not compulsion to live by a list of don'ts do this and do do this. No, it is a freedom from a compulsion that you had before Jesus. That before Jesus you had no choice but to sin. Everything that you did was sin. Even those good things were sin because they were out of wrong motives. They weren't in a place of worship. You were compelled to sin and now in Jesus you're free. Ultimate freedom, permanent freedom, eternal freedom, and to let anything in your life limit your freedom is a tragedy. Bumps in the road, offenses with others, misunderstandings, politics, the news, that your own sin, that whatever it is, if we let anything in our life restrain our spiritual freedom, we are walking on the sacrifice of Christ. Christ died, not so you would live in a legalism. Christ died so you could live in freedom. His death frees us from sin. Let's turn back to the left, back towards Ephesians that hit Galatians. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we're going to go Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. I hope you are enjoying this steak that is on the table. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When He was hung on the cross, He took upon Himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the Scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing He promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. He was cursed so that we can be blessed. Have you ever felt cursed? Well, in Jesus, you are free. You are free from the curse. He was cursed so that we can be blessed. Let's go back towards the right. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. 
It's after Hebrews and James. After Hebrews and James, you find 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in His steps. He never sinned, never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you've turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. He carried our sin. He carried our sin. I think it is a good question to ask, why is it, what made Jesus different? Why is it that Jesus could die for our sins? I think that's a good, honest, intellectual question. And I want to talk about that just real quick. Hebrews 4, 15 points out this. He was tempted in every way that we were and yet without sin. And that's written by Jesus' biological half-brother who did not believe that he was the Son of God until after his resurrection. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. A second reason for that, I want to just draw your attention to Colossians chapter 1. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. You guys hanging in there? Colossians chapter 1. I want to read just a bulk of this text here just to talk about Jesus because I think it's good to ask because, you know, if Jesus was just a human, then it wouldn't matter that he was put to death, right? What, what's the big deal, right? Colossians chapter 1, and I want to start in verse 13. For he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and everything on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Jesus was uniquely qualified. 
uniquely qualified to pay the price for our sin. I know that our gathering on Sunday would be more palatable, would be more attractive. You'd be more likely to want to bring other people if we didn't do certain things the way that we do. If we didn't sing the way that we sing and the songs that we choose. If we didn't have the teaching the way that we do. But listen, we are not here to please people. We love people because God created people and God loves people. And we want to do anything we can to remove any distraction, anything that is human, that is fleshly, anything that would get in the way of people meeting Jesus. We want to cut any of that out. And I'm from the West Coast, a very utilitarian culture. If something's broken, we re-break it, remake it, start from scratch. The last thing I want to do is anything in our church gathering to be based on tradition. I don't want anything in what we do as we gather to get in the way of you finding Jesus. But what I cannot do is have us gather and have it be a mile wide and an inch deep and just focused on pleasing ourselves. At the end of the day, someone needs to be in your life to look you in the eyeball and say, it's not about you. It's not about making you happy. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And how cruel would I be? Just as cruel as if God had not sent his son. If God created the world and then didn't reveal himself to us, that would be cruel. If God didn't give us his word to reveal himself to us, that would be cruel. And yet what is so easy is for us to let the little stuff in life distract us from beautiful Lord Jesus. Gideon and I have been enjoying this new uh, show, and it's made for adults, not for kids, so don't judge me. It's called NASA's Unexplained Mysteries. And it's got all this dramatic music, so sometimes we have to pause because the music gets too dramatic. But recently, we one one episode uh, we were watching, we were really enjoying. There was this um, skydiver in Norway, and he he was uh, skydiving, and and his helmet cam noticed a rock fly by him. And the shape and the color of the rock even made it look like some people thought that it might have be extraterrestrial, like aliens might have created this thing. And so NASA was analyzing it and trying to figure out what it was. And some NASA scientists said, well, the shape and the color, one side is light and one side is dark. And based on um, what we think, I think it probably was about this big, which means, I mean, 200 miles an hour could have killed him, right? And it, you see in the video, it goes flying past him. It's, just crazy, right? So they think it would, would have been about that big, but they think, well, with the color this way and the color, it's dark on this side, light on this side, so it's probably an asteroid, which would mean it's probably worth over a million dollars. So for a year, people searched the grid of where they thought and tried to find this asteroid. Hey, million dollars, it sounds like it's a great way to spend your weekend, right? It's better than, show me the money, right? So so they for a year, they couldn't find it. And then find, the video was released to... Uh, more people, and then uh, a particular team at NASA um, saw it for the first time, and they had just finished 10 years working on a software for calculating the size of things, and they applied this software that they spent a decade developing to figure out the size of this thing, and after they applied that software, they realized that this object was only this big. And once they figured that out, what they realized is that when the guy had packed his parachute, a piece of gravel had fallen in the parachute. When he pulled the cord, parachute popped the piece of gravel up in the air, and then it shot past him. But it actually shot past like this close to his helmet. But it looked really big. (laughs) 
Don't let something small distract you from Jesus. We don't have to know everything to know something. We don't have to know everything to know something. God loves you. Look at what He accomplished through Jesus on the cross for you. He loves you. Let's, let's summarize and share communion. Jesus' sacrificial death is God's solution for humanity's sin. He pays the penalty for our sin. He wants to wipe the slate clean and bring forgiveness. Jimmy, will you come and play, please? He wants to wipe the slate clean and bring forgiveness. If you're carrying any part of hurt or sin, you're stressed and your body is exhibiting the evidences of stress because you're carrying something that God did not design you to carry. You're carrying something that God did not create you to carry. It's time to let go and to let God. He wants to wipe the slate clean and bring forgiveness. Look at the screen just real quick. What what makes God's gift of grace so costly is that Jesus paid for it with his life. What makes it powerful is that he came back from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and showing that God accepted his sacrifice as payment for his sin. The resurrection of Jesus, what we celebrate in Easter, it's got nothing to do with rabbits and chocolate. Is that because Jesus came back to life, for 40 days revealed himself to 500 people, proves the fact that God accepted his payment for our sin. It's real. It's real. It's real. Jesus' death and resurrection were needed to free us from sin, from certain punishment, and from separation from God. Through it, we are clean, free, and able to enjoy God in our life here and in an eternal heaven. Aren't you thankful this morning? Aren't you thankful for Jesus? That He would go to the cross for you. That if it was only you, He would go. That His sacrifice is complete. There's no more part of the payment that is due from you. He paid the price completely. Our sweet Lord Jesus. God's love gives new life. It's complete. Before we take communion, I'd like to just pause and give you an opportunity to, in a quiet moment between you and the Lord, confess your sin. Confess your need for a Savior. So Jesus, in the days leading up to His death, sat down at a Passover meal when they would celebrate the way that God earlier had used animal sacrifice to pay the price for their sin and the Passover covenant. It's a beautiful reading in the scripture. 
they were preparing to share this Passover meal together and Jesus knew it would be his last dinner with them that the Romans were just waiting for that holiday to pass before they would imprison him and execute him, put him on a sham of a trial. And Jesus said to his followers, I have been earnestly desiring to eat this meal with you. And he explained the new covenant. He explained that animal sacrifice was no longer necessary. He explained that his body would be broken for them. He explained that his blood was what we call in scriptural terms the seal of the new covenant. His blood, you see, was not just shed, it was shared. There's life in the blood. The blood carries healing agents, it carries oxygen, it carries what your body needs to function. There's life in the blood. The blood of Jesus was shared with us. And you feel free to just have a private moment. And if you want to, just confess whatever sin. Confess your belief in Jesus, your relationship to Him as Lord. Ask for the cleansing. We'll have a moment of silence to remember the sacrifice of Christ and be alone with God.